Welcome to the podcast Imaginations and Cancellations. My name is Ani Nazari and in front of me is sitting Professor Dr. Frans Willem Corson, the person who wrote the book that this podcast is based on. Every episode we tackle a chapter of the book and try to understand the city through vectorizing sensibilities, which is the way that our feelings and senses are steered by how cities are presented. Each episode we will have two cities as a case study so we can understand the topics even better. This episode we will be talking about generic form of logical chronicle organization in the cities Rio de Janeiro and Seattle. This is the uh, first episode about forms. Mm -hmm. And the first episode is called the forms of logical chronicle organization. So uh, what does that mean? Is it like a storytelling way? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So logical, chronological, it's a combination okay. of two terms. So logical. it's logical and it's chronological. So suppose I would have, let's say, a chronicle, which is a certain uh, historiographical genre. Then you would have something like, uh, in the summer of that year, there was an enormous drought. In uh, December, there was a comet. Um, in uh, February, a king died. Now, these are things that, that happened in time and followed up on one another, but there's not a logical connection between the two, a bit between the, between the elements. So with the narrative, we have the logical-chronological, which means we have the combination of things that happened in time because they are kind of following up on one another, but there's also a logical connection to them in the sense that they are related in terms of, for instance, causation. So um, if we talk about cities, uh, one of the most basic narratives that we have about them is how they grew into what they are. And then most of the time you'll have, okay, and then we had a fire that destroyed half of the city, but then it was rebuilt, and then uh, there were more and more people coming to the city, so we needed expansions, and this was the first expansion, and so forth. So this is an entire story, history, told uh, in terms of how things followed up one another in time and how they are logically connected. And that's, let's say, at the basis of the narrative as this combination of organizing things in a logical, chronological way. Now, you could say, yeah, but isn't that the way it just happened? Uh, that's not what a narrative is and can be. A narrative always selects. It always selects uh, and it, it, it uh, proposes its own form of causality uh, because there's always different ways of looking at things. And, and and there's even different ways of, of considering what caused what. Because in the narrative, you have a narrator. Yeah. And this can be an entity, a nobody, a person, mm -hmm. someone in the story. And they can manipulate the story very easily if they want by choosing yeah. certain words. Uh, inevitably, I would say. So, so uh, in a sense, this chapter is also about a positive re-evaluation of the term manipulation which has, let's say, acquired uh, negative connotations. But manipulation simply means the organization of material in a skillful way. Uh, and if you've had an accident and you were brought to the hospital, I hope you'll have a doctor who is good in manipulation. It, so the origin of the term is using your hands well. Oh, but, because manus means hand yeah, in yeah, Latin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you have a narrative, it's inevitable that you manipulate which doesn't mean that anything goes, of course not. And this is also why narratives can be chat, right? So you, you propose a certain organization of the material to an audience, and then we can check that, uh, if we can. 
So manipulation is, is is inevitable, and but the important point is that we constantly realize as soon as a narrator starts to act, there's the selection of material, and there is the certain ways in which things are being organized in this logical, chronological way. So uh-huh. one, I think one important aspect, for instance, in this chapter is where does the history of Rio de Janeiro start? Oh, yeah, I read something about like a tourist guide yeah. who was very focused on like the European settlement. So then it would seem like Rio only had history from when the Europeans came right. in. Yeah. But before that, of course, there was a bigger history. It was just not written down. Right. So it, it it is framing yeah. how you would... Yeah. Of yeah. course, if, if we could still hear the stories that were told by the people living there, we would also have different histories, right? So there would also not be, let's say, that there's one official history. There would probably be different storytellers telling different stories about what happened. Um, But indeed, let's say, in the case of Rio de Janeiro, even its name already suggests that it starts as soon as the Portuguese arrive. Because that's when it gets its name, right? (laughs) Yeah, true. Yeah, it's, it's... Still, like the it's very sounds very manipulative to me. So I can, like I, I read a lot of like novels which had a narrator, and in 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 high school when you have when you read a book, you also had to um, analyze the narrator. Who is it? Is it in the story? What does it tell us? But it's it's now in this way. It still sounds like very manipulative and very like negative. Maybe it's like what I. Yeah, but I need so let's say. Uh, there is no objective narrative possible. So there is no objectivity. That's, that's, a, that's a philosophical um, uh, given. And, and all those people who say that objectivity is possible uh, are simply confused in my reading of things. Uh, and they also don't have any, let's say, real evidence where they could say, well, this is the objective way of how we should consider reality. And it, that holds for urban environments and for other things. So, for instance, if you would say, what's the objective story of Rio de Janeiro? I, I don't have a clue. Yeah, neutrality yeah. is hard to achieve. It's not possible. Yeah. It, can you, like, come as close as possible to it? But Well, there is, of course, a certain ethics involved, and there is a distinction between uh, clear, let's say, uh, fabulation and just making up stories. There's people who have argued, if you if you bring all the stories together about Rio de Janeiro you'll get as close as possible to have an, an objective view, but that doesn't make sense to me either. I mean, you simply have a collection of, of very different subjective experiences and, and, and reports on Rio de Janeiro. So I don't think it's that bad at all that, that you always have a positioned uh, narrative about things. It's more about how aware is the, the narrator itself about its position and how aware are we as audiences about the position of narrators? So this is, I think, where, let's say, the force of analysis can come in. How aware am I of my position? And how aware am I of the positions taken by the narrator? And the distribution of roles that it facilitates? I'm thinking of a court right now. Right. Um, a defendant and a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And they both have different stories on a matter. And it's up to the court to decide the, what happened. Absolutely. This is a, a, a fascinating example. So my favorite way of, of uh, 
analyzing this would be, so the prosecutor has to be a formalist. So everything has to be formally correct, right? Otherwise, the, the let's say the accused for, uh, walks free. If there's a mistake in the, in the formula, then it's... The lawyer who defends the, accu- the accused has to be a semiotic in a sense that the lawyer has to open up as many possibilities as possible to, fence, to defend someone. And the judge has to be a hermeneutic in a sense that the judge wants to find out what really happened. I don't know whether you've ever been involved in a court case or, or whether you ever fo- followed one, but a judge will never say that he or she found out what really happened. It's always an assessment. And of course, ideally, you'd have to have a judge who is interested in what really happened. Yeah. Uh, because if you have a judge, like some judges in, in Russia, for instance, then they could frame it in any way they wanted it. So you, you need judges in a, in a functioning rule of law system that are interested in what really happened and that do not answer to what, let's say, uh, a state official wants them to say. Yet again, we're back to the framing. Absolutely, yeah. Framing is is inevitable. So any any narrative frames a certain way of organization. So another way to tell a story in a logical, chronological way mm-hmm. uh, could be documentary. Yep. And the the goal, I think, the beauty of it is that what what people find the most beautiful about it that is it is as real as possible. Mm-hmm. You can like cut, um, add music, but it is still like showing a frame, a picture, a real world, talking to people of what they are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a documentary about Seattle, mm-hmm. about homelessness, yeah, and drug addiction, abu- yeah, yeah, addiction yeah. drug abuse, and they found it very, um, still very framed, and the music was already. Uh, like not fitting Mm -hmm. and with the trailer already they set a certain tone Mm -hmm. of seattle so you couldn't like get uh, get to your own conclusions right or or you can of course but it's made more difficult because your your body has already been brought into a state uh just the other day i was looking at the bbc where there was a they have these uh programs where people can send in criticism and they, uh, there was a viewer who said, I saw a report on the war in Ukraine and there was music underneath it. And I find that repulsive. And I, I immediately tended to agree. So w- what happens if, if you f- film, let's say, uh, real events, war events, the enormous destruction that's taking place there, and then we put music underneath it, which starts to resemble, let's say, as if it's, it's cinema or, or where you would say, well, if you didn't feel how bad it is yet, we'll put some kind of uh, sentimental music underneath it, then you'll feel it better. So uh, this viewer was critical of using real footage of war and then influencing the audience by putting music underneath it. So there's an ethics involved here and and also um, fascinating ways of influencing people. So they have done research into this. um, When you have these documentaries about animals... And because human beings are the biggest predator on this planet, they like to make documentaries about predators. <laughs> yeah. And there's often music underneath it. And then they showed it to children. With the music, they found it horrifying. Without the music, they didn't. 
So it's the music that actually frames them in such a way that they say, oh, how awful, a tiger eats a, a doe or something. Well, if you take away the music, they simply see an animal eating another animal. Um, and in this case, with, with uh, Seattle, it's, it's framing, let's say, the entire situation of homeless, addicted people there in terms of a danger to the city. It can be the case that they are, at parts, dangerous or that they uh, turn environments into more nasty environments. Uh, the criticism with regard to this documentary was, did you really trace the, the origin of why people are homeless and why they are addicted, instead of defining them immediately as the problem itself? So, yeah, the documentary was about like that, that it's down to the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's your fault that, yeah. you're, that you're homeless now, but actually it was a, a cause of different things. Also behind your words and what the documentary did, we have narratives about who's responsible for something in one's life. And, and in the neoliberal framework, you are responsible for organizing your life. So here there's narratives that uh, are incompatible. Either you say every individual is responsible for his or her own life, or you say, no, we need actually a sort of collective uh, network. We need solidarity to help people who have been hit by, uh, let's say, disaster, uh, or who weren't able to cope with uh, situations that became so difficult that they made the wrong choices. If I can use, let's say, an example of what's happening currently with long COVID, people who suffer from long COVID, that's pretty bad, actually. I know a few people who suffer from this. Now, suppose they would be living in a society where you say, yeah, well, we don't care. We Apparently, you did something wrong. Otherwise, uh, I don't have long COVID. Why do you, right? So there's also, let's say, people arguing that if you get a disease, it's your fault. Or if they don't say it that explicitly, they might, let's say, say it implicitly. So there's there's incompatible narratives in how we organize solidarity, how we organize individual responsibilities. Um, and this very much relates also to how we think about cities. Uh, should, for instance, cities take care of how clean a city is? Uh, should administrations be responsible for those who have great debts? Uh, should they help them? It's all these different aspects of what you could see happening in urban environments. Yeah, that's immensely influential. What the narrative is that organizes the way in which people think about individual and collective responsibilities. So in a narrative perspective or a word itself, there can be already a steering narrative? Am I saying that right? Yeah, absolutely. So so, uh, if you consider Seattle, for instance, the very name of that city is the name of one of the leaders of one of the original Native Americans who lived there. So why would you take the name of, of, by and large, the people that became extinct or that you slaughtered or that got disease and so forth to give to, to your city? And you could consider that, let's say, to be an honorable thing. So at least they acknowledge that there were people living there. <laughs> before yeah, but it's came. like only the name, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is also why people have protested against names of um, uh, American uh, military equipment, uh, especially airplanes have yeah. gotten names of Native Americans. That's, Apache. That's very... Uh, so let's say there's a helicopter called Apache. There's, a, there's a, a, a jet called Tomahawk and so forth. So so what are you doing actually there? Are you 
somehow whitewashing a certain history? Are you appropriate, appropriating, let's say, the histories of others by taking their names and giving it to, to your own equipment? Do you want to honor it? You want to honor it? That's, that's possible. Uh, but still, there's, there's really things to be considered here. And I would say uh, perhaps you'd have to talk to the people who it concerns them, right? So, so if you take your own history, uh, I believe your history is much determined by Armenian history, right? Now suppose, let's say, that one of, of the heroes in Armenian history would be appropriated by the Turkish government, uh, uh, who would say, yes, we're going to use that name to, uh, to give it to a drone that we uh, have developed. What would you think about that? I would be pretty mild because I would know that the drones would probably u- be used against <laughs> Armenians. So yeah. it's like one of our heroes is are t- attacking us right. back. I will be very mad. <laughs> yeah, see, that's that's how how it works. So, it would have to be. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm simply not knowledgeable on, enough about this. But but I I'd love to talk to let's say those who are still there, left of of the peoples living there before Seattle came to be where it was. What do you think about this name? Perhaps they they would say I'm f- I feel honored that that name has been preserved by giving the city this name. They could also say I find that slightly perverse. But also, it's the same thing with Rio de Janeiro, actually. Right. Yeah. It's a yeah. Portuguese name. So you would <laughs> imply that it's Portuguese now. Like you yeah. can't do anything about it. It's That's a question. So we have examples of uh, people's renaming things. So, for instance, Rhodes- oh, yeah. Rhodesia is now nowadays called Zimbabwe. Uh, Batavia was renamed into Jakarta. So uh, you can think of renaming also re- refusing to call a place right. yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, uh, last episode, Mumbai, Bombay. Right, yeah, same thing. So Very good, yeah. Tells a lot. This concludes this episode. Next episode, we will be talking about forms of fragments and improvisation in the cities Lagos and Barcelona. Thank you for listening and keep imagining.